Today, we are starting a year-long journey through um, the story of the Bible. Now, if you're joining us online, we want to say this to you very quickly, that we have a booklet that we provided for every person who came today. And in the comments section, if you would like us to send you a PDF of that version of that booklet, or if you would like it, you know, placed in the comments or whatever, we want to email it to you. So all we need you to do is put your email down in the comments section below, or you can direct message uh, Pastor Vanessa, who is our host right now inside of our community group, or you can find our Facebook page, DM us. We will send that to you guys so you can track along. But for all of us inside the room, if you didn't get one upon entering, make sure you grab one on the way out because as we go through the book of the Bible, as you can see up on the screen, we're going to be spending a few weeks on creation and covenant. But as we go throughout the Bible, the themes are going to begin to change throughout all of that. So with every theme change that we have, you're going to be getting a, a new booklet for that specific theme to help you track along with us um, and to help you better understand your Bible as you're reading through it. Now, at the beginning of the year, many of us uh, started the Read Scripture app where we start going from Genesis all the way through Revelations. And the question's been brought up is, hey, is there going to come a part with what we're reading throughout the week going to be addressed on Sunday? And the answer to that is yes. As you begin to go and as we begin to catch up to you guys in the weekly Sunday morning content, we're going to find ourselves going through the same reading throughout the same week and talking about the stuff that you guys are, are reading. So it's really kind of like a two-phase deal. On Sunday mornings, we're going to walk through the Bible. Daily, you're reading through it, and then it's going to cross paths, and it's really going to be honest. But I will say, that booklet is going to be a tremendous, tremendous help in, the, in helping you understand the Bible. So make sure you take advantage of that. I believe this to be true, and I want you to hear me when I say this. I believe there is no greater investment that we can make in our lives as believers in Jesus than the investment of spending time in God's word. I don't think there's another investment that we can make that pays off as much as God's word does. And the reason I believe that to be true is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says this in verse 16. We went over this a couple weeks ago. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In some translations, it will say that all scripture is, is God-breathed. It's God's voice. If you don't hear God speaking, it's most likely because you're not in God's word. That's one of the ways that he speaks. But I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living. Everyone say living. living. And powerful. Say that with me. Say, and powerful. You guys are going to have to talk with me today because we got a lot of content. And we're going to get to a part here in a minute where we're going over some nuts and bolts of the Bible. And some of you are going to be like, wait, what? So we got to be very active. So let's try this again. For the word of God is living. Say living. living. And powerful. Okay, so it's living and powerful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, in the message version, it says it like this, and I love it. It says, God means what he says, and what he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. What we see from these scriptures and what we know to be as believers is we know that God's word is mightily important. 
And because of that, we're devoting the whole year to it. I came across these stats and I thought it was pretty interesting. Check this out. 80% of the things that you do in life, you can find someone else to do. Some of you are like, I'm so glad I heard that stat today. I'm going to start making a to-do list of all the things that I do, and I'm going to discover what it is I can pass off, right? 80%. 15% of the things you do in life, you can pay someone to do. We don't really like that one too often, right? <laughs> it's like, can you do that for free? It'd be really cool. Now watch here. 5% of the things that you do in your life, only you can do. For me personally, I'm the husband to Vanessa Shepherd. Only I can do that. I'm the father to Michael, to Jacob, to little Adeline who's on the way in May. Hey, what do you say? It just all rhymed. I'm a poet. You didn't even know it. Um, <laughs> only I could be their dad. Only I could do that, right? Makes sense. Here's the deal. In your spiritual growth, in reading God's word, in understanding it, studying it, only you can do that. It's completely up to you. It's the thing that's within your control. At the end of the day, your, your spiritual life with God is determined by your ability to seek after God. You've heard me say this before. You could have as much of God or as little of God as you choose to have. It's completely up to you. So as we navigate this whole idea of understanding the Bible, I know the tension in the room or maybe the tension online. That's a big book to understand. There's a lot of things that, man, I, I, I can't make sense of that. Hey, next week we're going to talk about the flood. Has anybody ever read the story of the flood and go, wait a minute, God's creation? And he sinks it? Let's have some fun here. Because when you read in the New Testament, what's it say? God's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. Well, I hear that scripture and I go back to the flood and I go, whoa, whoa, where's the long-suffering there? Crazy, huh? I mean, we're going to point some stuff out in this series that is going to cause you to have to come face-to-face -face <laughs> with what it is you really believe. Now, here's the great news. You don't have to figure it out on your own. Anybody else thankful for that? I am so thankful that when I have to understand this Bible, or should I say, when I get to understand this Bible, that I don't have to figure this out on my own. Number one, I have the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Who will lead us in all truth? If you've ever wrestled with the scripture, you were one prayer away. Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. Show me what I need to know. That's the promise that Jesus gave. That is a great, great promise. But then there's some other things that, guess what? We've got to wrestle with. And I, and I want to tell you right off the bat, as we go throughout this year, there will be some things where we say, guess what? Until you get to heaven, you won't have a good enough answer because it don't make sense. That's the great part of this. We get to study God's word. We don't have to do it alone. We're going to give you plenty of resources. Matter of fact, in the back of that booklet that you contain right now, there are four to five, I think there's one app and four books that if you were to get those today on Amazon and get them to your house, you will understand the Bible in a way that you have never understood before. We're not leaving this just to Sunday mornings. We're saying, hey, we want to encourage you. We want to get you thinking about the scriptures. But the goal of this series is not that you just come and let us tell you what it is. It's that you go and you discover what it is. You've heard me say this before. Yellowstone Park, signs everywhere. What does it say? Do not feed the bears. Common sense to us, right? Those are mean mamma jammas. You call a bear a mamma jamma, he's going to get meaner. 
You talk to a, to a park ranger, though, they'll tell you the intent of that sign is not because the bears are just dangerous. A park ranger will tell you the reason we don't want you feeding those bears is because if they rely on you, they don't know how to hunt for themselves anymore. Translation, you can't just depend on me to feed you. Now, my role as a pastor is to encourage that, and I will do that. But listen to me, you need to learn how to feed yourself. Like that bear, you need to learn to hunt for yourself. So that's the goal of all of this. I'm telling you, this could be one of the most fantastic years of your life. I love that word fantastic. Say fantastic. It just sounds good. Makes me think of candy. I don't know why. Here's the deal. Let me give you a big idea for the series, okay? I think I've set the kind of the platform for it. I want you to write this down, type this in, whatever. You're going to hear this statement said almost every single week. You're going to find it there in your booklets. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But we also believe that the Bible is a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. We believe that to be true. From Genesis to Revelations, everything we see is this path and this road that leads us to a guy by the name of Jesus. Now, you've had your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 1 for quite some time. And guess what? I'm going to make you wait longer, but I want to do something really cool. How many of you guys have been doing the Read Scripture Bible app? Just show up, hands, ground. Okay, great. Oh my gosh. What a tremendous resource, right? Now, let me ask you this. How many of you guys have really enjoyed the videos that they have that kind of give you this really good layout before the content? If you, listen, if you have not done the Read Scripture app, you need to download it and just start wherever we are. Start from the beginning. Take the rest of Sunday. Get caught up. They have these tremendous videos and this morning, as I was thinking about and putting this message together this week with Vanessa, I'm just going, man, they have a video on creation that is just too good to pass up. So I thought to myself, would church rather me read two scripts or two chapters of the book of Genesis, or, or, or would they rather see a much more creative way of the story that will cause your eyes to be opened to just how good the very beginning of the Bible. And I thought to myself, hmm, 10 minutes of reading, you listening, your attention span's gonna go. And I'll tell you why. Because my attention span would go. I'd be like, all right, we're halfway through chapter one. We're gonna just pause here, pick up the rest later. So here's what I want you to do. We're gonna turn our attention to the screens and we're gonna look at the creation story from the Bible project in a way that you've probably never seen before. It's gonna be interesting. Take a look. The first book in the Bible is called Genesis. And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out. Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, your Bible translation might say, The heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land. The ground below us. Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which starts in the next line. And it reads, Now the land was wild and waste. This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing. 
and darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is ruach, which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes, and this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah, every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days 1 through 3, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then on days 4 through 6, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay, so the first realm of order begins with light on day one. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then, matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food. Now, over and over, God says what he created was good. But then, after making humans, God says that it is very good. Yes, Humanity is the climax of days one through six, and their importance is explained in the first poem in the Bible. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like the other land creatures, but they're also more. They're God's image, which means that together, men and women embody and represent the creator within his creation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful 
and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the creatures. This is the purpose of being God's image, to oversee creation as God's partners and representatives in the world. Very cool. Now, after the six days, we get a concluding line that links back to the keywords of the opening line. And so we're completed, the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Except there's one more day. It stands outside the pattern of days one through six. It's the big climax. And God completed on the seventh day the work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. So God rests on the seventh day. This is a standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in his sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. Now that phrase, there was evening and morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. That's right. The seventh day has no end. That's because Genesis 1 is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos. A place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. Yes, the seventh day is the goal of creation. It's actually so important that the author of Genesis 1 has woven the number seven into every part of the story. There are seven days of creation, seven announcements that creation is good. There are seven Hebrew words in the opening verse, and then two times seven Hebrew words in verse two. And then the statement about the seventh day has three lines of seven words. Wow. So the first page in the Bible is doing way more than just telling us how the world was made. Right. Genesis 1 has been designed to show us that God's purpose is to share creation with his images so they can rest and rule it with him forever. And that purpose is what the rest of the biblical drama is all about. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that whole thing about seven, fascinating stuff. I mean, those are the things where when we start to dive into our Bibles and start to slow down and start to read, that we begin to discover those deep truths and those deep things that God actually wants us to begin to see. Now, I want to make a statement here real quick, and then I'm going to go through this next part doing some teaching. And I want you just to follow with me real quick, okay? Because any time that we talk about creation, what we have to wrestle with in our culture is creation. Would you all agree? Did God do it or did evolution do it? How's this all work? Has anybody ever been in that conversation with someone? No? Okay, great. Let me ask again. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone about creation versus evolution? Show of hands. Okay. Have you ever sat in a classroom where they told you what they think it is? Show of hands. Okay, cool. That, I thought that'd get a little bit more response. Because many times we sit in places and we let other people talk about it and we wrestle with the fact, okay, what is it that I really know about this? How can I actually, as a born-again, Bible-believing person, literally have a debate or a conversation, civil, by the way, on the idea of creation versus evolution? So I want to give you some things real quick to consider, okay? Some things that you can literally tuck away for another day so when the conversation comes up, because it is a big conversation, this is a huge, huge deal. There's no way you can go through Genesis without having to talk about creation versus evolution, okay? So I want to make a statement to you. This is my personal opinion. You may have heard it before, but I believe this to be true. I believe that it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does creation. Me personally. 
Now, someone argue and say, well, yeah, because that's because you're a, a, a Christian. You're a believer. And there's some merit to that. But if you really stop and think about, okay, you mean to tell me everything that we have came from nothing? Right? It's really quiet on this part. I was anticipating this. I can't wrap my head around that. There's no way that for me, me personally, that I could look at what we see and what we have and how life is from what it used to be to what it is today and to where it's going and think that that just stems from nothing. It doesn't make sense to me. So let me give you what's known as the summary of scientific biblical thought on creation. Okay, all of my fellow, fellow information people, let's have some fun, okay? It is first of all important to note that science is not in competition with faith. We have to understand this. In fact, the two are very much connected as early scientists used their passion for God to fuel their wonder and exploration of understanding his creation. It wasn't until the age of enlightenment that the science community began to question and to frame their data outside of religious terms. So they had this word called a paradigm. Could you say paradigm with me? Okay, the definition of a paradigm. It is a framework containing the basic assumptions, ways of thinking, and methodology that are commonly accepted by members of a scientific community. So let's just talk about creation versus evolution, okay? Here's the paradigm. Here's what's known as conventional paradigm or naturalistic. They believe that everything relies on the natural processes to form the world, and their main theory of that is evolution. Based on a scientist, Charles Darwin's theories, including his original image of a tree to represent the origin of all life and that have thought to have been supported by early experimentation. They believe that the world has been around for 13.7 billion years. But since Darwin said what he said, since the theory was embraced, Science has disproven much of what is presumed to be true. Darwin believed that the future fossil discoveries would vindicate his theory, but that hasn't happened. Actually, fossil discoveries over the last 150 years have literally turned his theory completely upside down. What he thought was going to prove his point actually discredited his point. There's a great resource, and if you're watching online, we're going to put it in our Facebook community group. If you're here in the room, go back and see it. But it's a book written by Lee Strobel called The Case for a Creator, which is where this quote came from, through all of the research. What Darwin thought was this, science has actually proven otherwise. Doesn't make any sense. Now there's what's known as a Genesis paradigm. This is more of a biblical approach. It starts with a creative mind that creates the world, like you just saw in that video. The notable theories in this paradigm is what's known as the gap theory and creation. Let me give them to you very quickly. The gap theory is this. It's a time span of unknown quantity due to the belief that there was a gap or a starting over of creation between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The gap theory says there's, there's a gap inside of there that is not recorded in the Bible that we understand, okay? And it is based on the possible interpretation of the Hebrew verb haya. I love saying that word, by the way. Haya, which could be understood as became or had become, referencing something of great significance that is not recorded 
to have happened. It's known as the gap theory. You can look it up later on Google. It's the gap theory. The second is creation. What that is, is it's the time span of six literal days based off the belief in the historical text as it is written, narrative in literal form, not poetic, meaning it happened just as it says it was written. Okay, everyone look at me very quick. Whew. Right? Only two sides on this deal. Evolution or creation? Evolution, Darwin's theory. Creation, gap theory, six literal days. There are some things in the Bible, when, when you read it, Christians, pastors, and scholars, when it comes to is it the gap theory or is it six literal days, like the question, was it six continual days that God created everything? How would you answer that? What would you say? Believers, scholars, still cannot agree on literal days versus the fact that we don't know how God's time of days operate. But here's the deal. It's not a hill worth dying on. Does that make sense? It doesn't change creation. God created it. Listen, God created everything. I think it still takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does in creation. People ask me, Pastor, where do you lie on this deal? We live in a beautiful place. Could we all agree? Amen. The coast. Have you ever just gone out and just stared at the waves and have that rest come in your soul? That, and thought to yourself, God, you're so good. That ever happened to anybody but me? Okay, all you mountain people. You ever just gone up into the mountains and just looked around, saw a sunset or a sunrise? I remember one time I was standing on the top of Half Dome, staring out, just going like, and literally, this is just my thought. You cannot convince me any other way that there isn't a God. Because when I look out and I see this, there's a God. You know what's crazy? I didn't even come up with that. Look at Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Translation, I can see God through all that's created. I believe this to be true. God's creation reveals God's character. Look at Job 12.7. But now ask the beast, and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know the hand of the Lord has done this? And whose hand is the life of the very living thing and the breath of all mankind? Man. Bible's amazing. Now we're going to close as Nate comes. I felt like, and I'm going to feel like as we go throughout this series, that I want to talk to two things inside of us, our minds and our hearts. And I believe in this series, even spending some time right here to talk about the different paradigms that exist, the arguments that take place, the facts that are represented, are so beneficial to us as believers that we have to know these things.
I believe there does come a point where obviously we can say, you know what, you can say there's no God, but my life has been forever changed. Because you don't know what I was like before God got a hold of me. I think that's great. We should all have that. I also believe that we should be informed upon God's word and know how to defend our faith. And so because of that, we've got to speak to both. We've got to speak to our minds. We've, we've got to know how to have a conversation with the person and say, well, no, I, I believe God created it. And a person say, well, I believe in evolution. We need to have those conversations because that conversation can bridge the gap for someone to come to know Jesus. It's mightily important. So we'll, we'll speak to our minds, but we'll also speak to our hearts, which is where we end today. This is where we end. When I look at the creation story, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, fall comes in chapter 3, then we'll talk about the flood next week. I see four things about God that I think is worth noting and understanding. If you're taking notes, the first thing that I see is I see that number one is that God is creative. He's a creative God. He is the source of creativity, not a source. He's a creative God. We could spend so much time going through all of the things that are created in this world. And some of them, I gotta be quite honest, can make us laugh a little bit. Like, God, what were you thinking on that one? You know, you ever seen an insect or an animal or some type of bug and go, why? What? Well, God knows. There's probably a reason. God's creative. It says his spirit was hovering over the darkness. You know, from the beginning of the time, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were there. When it talks about that spirit hovering, what is that? It's the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. Hovering. And you know what that? There was, like the video said, there was chaos, darkness, an abyss. And what does God do? God in his creativity brings order. With his creativity, he brings order and he brings peace. So what's the personal application for all of us? It's very simple. Sometimes in different seasons, in the chaos and the darkness and the confusion of our lives, God's spirit brings order and peace. If you find yourself here today with areas in your life where it's just broken and dark and confusing, God's spirit and his creativity brings order to your life. And you're always a prayer away from God bringing that. God in his creativity brought an order to our lives that gives us peace that we can all experience. I see God's creative. Number two, I see that he's loving. Man, I love this one. When I look at the story of creation, I see that God's loving. What did he say after he created something? That's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's really good. Sees man's alone, says that's not good. Thank God in his sense of humor said, yep, yeah, guys are going to need someone to keep them in line. 
Ladies, that was your chance and your opportunity. You've missed it. It's right like, amen. <laughs> Ladies, bring an order to the house. The Bible says that all good things come from above. Meaning everything good that you have in your life is because God is a loving God. Right. He gives Adam and Eve all of this stuff. And you can go back and read later, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 through 30, and see that he gave them all the fields and all the plants, gave them ownership, you control the animals. That had to be, that had to be fun, by the way. You, you do all of that. God's a loving God. When I think about how God is loving and how God gives and how all things are good, I can't help but think of 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to read this to you because it shows us something about God's goodness and lovingness in our life. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things. Now watch here. That pertain to life and godliness. Pause. God gives you good things so that you can be good spiritually, but God also cares about your ins and outs of life. He wants to bless you. He wants all of your needs met. He cares about those bills that you have to pay. He cares about the job that you go to. He cares about all the needs that you have for your children. He says right here, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. But here's the key sentence, that through these you may be partakers. What's that mean? It means the goodness of God is out there for you, but you have to choose to take it. But he's a loving God. Number three, the word that stands out is the word worthy. When I look at God's character in creation, I see worthy. Let me put it to you this way. God is worthy, but he gives us power to choose. You say, Pastor Rich, why aren't we focusing on the fall? It's because we all know it. We understand it. We've all seen it personally in our own lives too. You say, man, if God is so good and God is so powerful, why didn't he just create people that wouldn't make that mistake? Because he's a God, he's a God of choice, of free will. His goodness is there for you. And like we see in the story, there's an evil. God's a God who wants to be wanted. Can you imagine getting married to someone? You get married, do the ceremony, eat the meal, stuff the cake in their face, say goodbye to everybody, and then go, all right, cool, see you next week. And then you go to your house, and the lady goes to her house, and you don't talk, don't do anything together. Would you feel wanted? Nope. You'd feel like your name is just being used on a piece of paper to help with taxes. I don't know. When you understand that God is a jealous God, it says in the scriptures, not willing that any would have your attention more than him, he's a God who wants to be wanted. Now let me ask you the question, why do you think you feel the same way? Oh, because in creation you were created in his image. So think of how you feel. You want your spouse to want you, that relationship to want you? God feels the same way. 
but he gives you this free choice. Adam and Eve blow it. But what did I say? The Bible is the one, it's the uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus, which gets me to point number four, my favorite one. I know I said point two is my favorite one, but now I've changed my mind. Point four is my favorite one. He's gracious. Free will comes, Adam and Eve blow it. And God's gracious. God in his grace towards us still pursues you and I, no matter what. Now I get it. I get it. We had to go to some heavy places today, right? Some of you college students, you're back in town, you're going to class, whether it's online or in person, you're like, hey, I didn't come to church to think today. Me neither. But you got to understand this whole thing. Creation's a big deal. It's massively important. But I want to end with a scripture on the graciousness of God. And as I read this scripture, you can follow along on the screen. I feel like in my heart this week as I prayed that I wanted this scripture to be the scripture that we really settled on. And that we really said, okay, in God's graciousness towards me, what do I need to know? Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read it together. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Goes on to say in the next one, verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see all the references here that can literally point all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1? Adam and Eve created for good things created in God's image. But God, rich in mercy, rich in grace. How many of you are thankful for that grace today? Of God's continued grace. Yeah.